Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. This is a talk from our Sutton service. To find out about upcoming talks at each of our services, or to listen to other talks, please visit ChristchurchLondon.org. Each of our half a dozen services across London are looking at different aspects of what it means to be generous and what giving is all about. And as I was thinking and praying about what angle do we take here in Sutton, I want to do something a little different. I had this verse going round and round my head uh, from the heart of the Old Testament, which says this, obedience is better than sacrifice. Obedience is better than sacrifice. Uh, It comes from a story in 1 Samuel chapter 15 that we'll look at a little later on. What exactly does it mean? Uh, You see, I have to confess, when I approach a gift day, like we'll be taking over the next couple of weeks, I often see it and feel it as a sacrifice. I feel the cost that it is to me. And just as an aside, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. Uh, I think the Bible has a lot to say about the power of going without for the sake of something greater. I go without to care for my children. I go without for the sake of the kingdom of God. And actually, one of the core themes of the Bible is that real life is found the other side of personal death. You save your life by losing it, said Jesus. As I stop living for me, I can find real life there. But this verse seems to imply there's something better than sacrifice. What exactly is that all about? What exactly does it mean? And to really understand what's what's going on here, I want to set this verse in the widest possible context and remind ourselves of what the story of the Bible is really all about. Because sometimes to really understand the Bible, you have to know what the bigger picture is to really grasp each individual story within it. A really silly example, uh, as many of you know, I am a huge, huge fan of Lord of the Rings. Well, I want you to imagine that I'm talking to somebody who's never read the books, never watched the movies. Uh, I might call this person a Philistine. Now, uh, just imagine that I say to this person, oh, at the end of the story, Frodo drops the ring in the fires of Mount Doom. Well, if you don't know the story, you might respond to that by saying, oh, no, poor Frodo. He's lost his ring. Can anyone help him get it back? But, of course, if you know the story, you know that's a complete misreading of that moment. That's the climax of the journey. That's what the story is all about. But you have to know the bigger picture to grasp that individual moment. And the Bible is very much the same. To really understand what each individual verse means, you kind of have to grasp the bigger picture. So I want to start by reminding ourselves, what's this story really all about? Well, if I had to put it as simply as possible, I would describe this story as a love story. It's a story of God's desire for relationship with humankind. And actually, many of the pictures of God throughout the Bible are overwhelmingly relational. He's likened to a parent or a lover or a friend. Uh, I'm a huge fan of the Christian artist Charlie Mackesy, who's based in London. And I love his depiction of the moment in the story of Jesus' parable, The Prodigal Son, when the loving father who represents God embraces the wayward child who represents us. Broken, penniless, and shamed. That is a picture of what the Bible is really all about. That is the connection and intimacy with God that's available for anybody who wants it. That is this story in a nutshell. And in fact, if you read the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for love is the Hebrew word emuna. I'm probably pronouncing it wrong, but I put it on the screen so you can see how it's spelt. And it means covenant loyalty. In other words, the Bible sees faith, relationship with God, as something like a marriage. A marriage is a covenant. In other words, it's not just a place for deep intimacy and connection, but deep commitment from one party to another. 
God's deeply committed to relationship with humankind. And that word covenant is actually really, really important because from one angle, the Bible is a story of covenants. And there are actually six of them in total. And to remind ourselves of the Bible story from one angle, I want to walk through these six covenants very briefly, each of which builds upon the other to create this picture of God's longing for relationship with humankind. So let's start right at the beginning. The very first covenant, the one that many people miss, is what I might call the creation covenant. God creates humankind for the joy of intimacy and relationship, a bit like I might start a family for the joy of relationship, for the joy of connection. And there'll be a diagram that helps you grasp each of these covenants as we go through the story. And God appoints humankind to be what I might call kings and priests. Priests to connect the world to God and God to the world and enjoy relationship with him and kings to rule the world on God's behalf. But most of us know the start of the story. Humankind breaks covenant with God, in that we not only walk away from relationship with God, but we walk away from our call to be kings and priests. And the result of that breaking of the covenant means the world gets very dark indeed, and evil escalates and escalates and escalates, and it kind of climaxes in Genesis chapter 8, the story of Noah and the flood. And basically what happens there, if I could simplify it down, is God looks down at the brokenness in our world and he thinks, goodness, people are hurting themselves and each other so much. Like, this is breaking my heart. I think we need to press the reset button. I think we need to start again. And a flood comes and wipes out humanity, but a family is saved. Noah and his family. And when Noah and his family come out of the ark, God makes covenant number two what some people call the Noahic covenant, the commitment to Noah, where God basically says this, I am making a solemn promise to never deal with humankind in this way before. I'm going to deal with a problem of evil and depravity and sin in a totally different way. I'm never going to destroy the earth like that. And the sign of my covenant, of my promise, is a rainbow in the sky. In other words, God might look down and he might see all manner of human evil, the Rwandan genocide, the Holocaust, all manner of darkness, and he has made a solemn promise, I'm going to deal with evil and darkness in a different way. I'm not going to destroy the world like that again. I have promised. Now, this is good news for all of us, because it means if I come to God, even after like my darkest thoughts, words, and deeds, God's made a promise. I'm not going to do away with Andy. I'm going to deal with the brokenness in his life in a very different way. The problem is covenant number two doesn't go very far to dealing with the brokenness in the world. Noah and his descendants turn out to be just as broken as everybody before the flood. And evil begins to escalate again through the next three chapters of Genesis. It kind of culminates at Genesis chapter 11, the story of the Tower of Babel. And so in Genesis chapter 12, God makes covenant number three, the commitment to Abraham. Where he comes to this guy called Abraham and he says, look, Abraham, I want you to come out of this people who are basically just focused on hurting themselves and each other and go to the land that I'm going to show you. And I'm going to give you a land, and I'm going to cause your descendants to multiply enormously, and the whole of the earth is going to be blessed through you. And you're going to be, for me, a people who are kind of made righteous by faith. As you have faith in me, I'm going to say, that'll do. You want relationship with me, that'll do. I'll make you righteous. And through your seed, Abraham, through your offspring, the world is going to get blessed, and everything that's wrong with the world is going to be put right. Now, this is really exciting when it comes to this story of God wanting relationship with humankind. God's going to bless the world through Abraham's seed. The problem is when you read through the rest of Genesis, you look at Abraham's family and you think, 
how on earth are this family going to be a blessing to the world? Because they look just as broken as everybody else. I mean, they are a messed up bunch of people. And by the end of Genesis, they're now in Egypt with Joseph and his Technicolor dream coat. But the world still looks a mess. By the start of the second book in the Bible, Exodus, while they're still in Egypt, God has fulfilled his promise to multiply them enormously, but the world's still broken. And you look at these people and think, well, you're slaves now. How's the world going to get blessed through you? Well, most of us know this part of the story. God raises up a leader called Moses. Moses leads the Israelites out of slavery through the Red Sea. The enemies are destroyed behind them. And the other side of the Red Sea, God makes covenant number four, sometimes called the Mosaic Covenant, the covenant of law. Uh, I'm sure uh, many of you, or at least some of you, have seen the old, old, old movie, The Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston, uh, where Moses goes up, up the mountain, gets the two tablets of stone with the Ten Commandments on from God, comes back down. Now, this is not as Hollywood depicts, because God could only fit five commandments on one tablet and five commandments on the other. No, this is an ancient contract. There have been ten commandments on one tablet, ten commandments on the other. It's like God is saying this, here's a copy of the contract for you, and here's a copy of the contract for me. And if you live this out, Israel, if you follow the covenant, if you put me first and resolve not to lie or steal or covet or murder or commit adultery, like all the other nations on earth are doing, then you will be for me a kingdom of priests. It's those two words again. You'll connect the world to God and God to the world, and you'll rule the world on God's behalf. So live this out, and the world will be blessed through you. The covenant of law. And if you remember the story, these two tablets get put in a holy box called the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, makes a feature in Indiana Jones and Raids of the Lost Ark. There he is, there's Indy with the Ark. And this holy box, it kind of follows Israel around as this reminder of the covenant, the commitment between God and people. Live this out and the world will be blessed through you. And so Israel kind of becomes a people of the book, a people of the law, people of the covenant. And this is actually an important point, because sometimes you can read through the Old Testament and think, oh goodness, lots of rules and regulations here. This makes God seem a bit like a nasty headmaster in the sky, like, obey me. It's never meant to be that way. God's like, this is where you're going to find the good life. And if you live this out, you won't only be blessed yourself, but the world will end up being blessed through you. That's why you find verses like this in the Old Testament, and they'll come up on the screen behind me. Uh, Psalm 119, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Leviticus 18, verse 5, God says this, if you obey my decrees and my regulations, you will find life through them. Live this out, Israel. My chosen people, and the world's going to get blessed through you, and God will dwell with humankind again. Now, we'll get to covenants 5 and 6 in a moment, but it's under this covenant, covenant number 4, that we get to 1 Samuel chapter 15, where we read the words, obedience is better than sacrifice. So let's remind ourselves where these words find itself in the wider story. 1 Samuel chapter 15, Israel is ruled by its first ever king, a guy called King Saul. And Saul and the Israelites are facing a battle with a nasty group of people called the Amalekites. And God speaks to Saul through a prophet called Samuel, and he says, you're, you're going to wipe these guys out. You're, you're, you're going to win the battle. But when you do, you have to totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Don't take any of the plunder. Even, verse 3, and this will be on the screen, the cattle, the sheep, the camels, and the donkeys. You've got to destroy everything. 
Now, uh, this might seem very barbaric, very ruthless to our modern ears. So what exactly is going on here? Well, we have to understand the symbolism of the Amalekites in the Old Testament. Because in many ways, the Amalekites are the epitome of human evil and darkness. That's what they represent. It's like this is as dark as humankind can become. Amongst other things, the Amalekites killed children for sport. That's the kind of people that they were. And God's like, if you don't totally destroy everything that belongs to them, basically what's going to happen, it's going to be a bit like some Japanese knotweed that you don't root out entirely. And it's just going to end up growing back and spoiling the whole of the garden. And you will end up breaking the covenant because it will pollute you and you will miss out on your inheritance. So you've got to trust me, Israel, you've got to destroy everything. I tried to think of a modern-day parallel to try and earth this, and I remembered an illustration I gave at the church retreat back in August. If you were there, uh, you'll have heard this before, apologies for repetition, but I find this research really compelling. Uh, psychologists took a group of people, and they got half of them to think about a neutral subject, and the other half to think about money, wealth, finance, consumerism. Now, I've actually got some video footage of this experiment, which we'll play now, and I'll talk over it. So if you play the video, half the people neutral subject, half the people thinking about money, and once they've been primed, they end up walking past somebody who accidentally drops a whole load of files and folders on the floor. Now, this first person you can see, they have not, have not been thinking about money, and as you can see, they very kindly stop to help. Every other person you see in this clip has been thinking about money. And as you will see, they end up walking past the person in need again and again and again and again. They did a subsequent experiment where after getting some people to think about money, some not, they got them to put two chairs out for a subsequent experiment. Those who'd been thinking about money put the chairs way further apart than those who hadn't. And in fact, students primed to think about money so show a much greater preference for being on, the, on their own by themselves than being in community. And just bringing money to mind, just the process of thinking about money has been shown repeatedly to make people behave more selfishly, to make them more likely to lie, and more likely to behave in unethical ways. I mean, it's just extraordinary research. It's almost like, it's almost like money isn't just money. It's almost like it's got a power behind it that if I am not careful can pollute what's going on in here and cause me to fall short of what God intends for my life. This is kind of what's going on in 1 Samuel chapter 15. God says, you've got to destroy this plunder because remember the cattle, the sheep and the donkeys, it represents wealth to the Israelites. You've got to get rid of this or it's going to spoil who you are called to become. Keep the covenant, Saul. Keep the covenant, Israel. Well, you can guess what happens. Saul disobeys God. We read this in verse 9, beyond the screen. But Saul and the army spared Agag, he's the king of the Amalekites, and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak they totally destroyed. Now God's response to this act of disobedience, in my opinion, at first glance seems a bit harsh. If you feel this way, I share your emotion. Down to verse 19, back to the story. Samuel, God's spokesman, says this, Why didn't you obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, 
Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? Here's the verse. To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, arrogance like the evil of idolatry, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the men, so I gave in to them. Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. Whoa. That sounds like a harsh moment to me. And if you're like me, you feel sorry for Saul at this point. Because it seems like he's apologetic. It seems like he's sorry, like he's repentant. More than that, it seems like he took the flocks, not the selfish, greedy gain, but so he could sacrifice them to the Lord at a place called Gilgal. That was a legitimate place of sacrifice, way of connecting with God. And yet all he seems to receive in response to this is rejection from Samuel, from God himself, and he ends up losing everything. He loses the kingship and everything that goes with it. It's like, whoa, that's harsh. What on earth is going on here? Well, in many ways, this is exactly the way we are supposed to feel. You see, in the Hebrew Bible, when it wants to explain something, it doesn't articulate a theory, it tells us a story. And so this is how we're meant to feel. What we're meant to feel and see at this point is the limits of the Mosaic Covenant. We're meant to feel and see, hang on, I, I don't know whether the world can be changed through this covenant. If Saul isn't good enough, this guy who's head and shoulders better than everybody else, this guy who's king, like who's offering amazing sacrifices and winning battles, if he's not good enough, is anyone good enough? This is how we're meant to feel. Uh, those of you who know me will know I have a uh, very short attention span, and I need illustrations every now and then to keep me interested. So to try and help us understand this, uh, I've got an illustration. I've done this before, made it up myself. Uh, please indulge me, but it helps me get what's going on here. And uh, for this illustration, uh, I need uh, a volunteer. Adam, really kind of you to volunteer. Do you want to come to the front, please? Love that servant heart of yours. Now, um, if you want to come and stand here, um, I've got here a, a tennis racket and a ball. What I'd like you to do is just keep hitting the ball in the air over and over and don't let it touch the floor. Just keep on going while I keep talking, okay? Okay, now what this symbolizes here is obeying the law, keeping the covenant, doing everything that God intends. There's some nervous looks on the front row. Like, uh, notice as an aside, the hard work, concentration, and effort it requires to keep the law, to keep the covenant. Now, there are two problems with the Mosaic covenant, two problems with obeying the law, and they both are different sides of the same coin. They both revolve around the problem of self. Problem number one is this. What happens if you are really good at obeying the law? What happens if you are really good at keeping the covenant? Uh, Adam, maybe you could symbolize being really good at keeping the law by doing a little trick, a little spin. <laughs> you, you, you are so easily pleased, my friends. <laughs> you see, what, what happens if you're really good at keeping the covenant is basically at least to pride and arrogance, and conceit. You basically become like the Pharisees in the New Testament. Look how amazing I am. This is what Saul represents. A few illustrations uh, from the story which come up on the screen. Firstly, when Saul beats the Amalekites, the first thing he does, we're told, 
1 Samuel 15, is he goes to a place called Carmel and he builds a monument in his own honor. Who's won the battle? Not God, it's me. Look at me, everyone. Are you not entertained? I'm amazing. Secondly, he is utterly blind and oblivious to his own weakness. He's told to destroy everything. And we know, the reader knows, you didn't. I mean, you see the contradiction. I, I did obey the Lord, but here's the king and here's all the flocks. Like, he thinks he's doing amazing and he's utterly blind to the fact, no, 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 you have disobeyed God. You are not as good as your monument says you are, Saul. Thirdly, there's this really emotive dialogue between Saul and Samuel, where Saul says, Samuel, come with me so I can worship God. And Samuel says, I will not go with you. It seems really harsh, and it's really significant because at this point in the story, you need a mediator to connect to God. If Samuel does not go with Saul, he's not going to be able to connect with God. Why is Samuel being so mean? Well, we find out in verse 30. Because what's happened is this. Saul only wants Samuel to come with him to worship God. Why? So he looks good in the eyes of the people. In other words, if you remember that picture by Charlie Mackesy, that embrace, if it's all about relationship with God, Saul doesn't want relationship with God. He just wants God to fulfill his own desires. Make me look good, God. Give me an easy life. And perhaps the most telltale sign comes in verse 21, where Saul says this, I got all these animals to sacrifice them to the Lord your God. He's not my God. He's yours. In other words, in in modern day terms, he's going to church and giving his money and serving on teams. And he's really impressive because he wants relationship with God. No, 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 because he feels like if I do this, God will answer my prayers. God will give me an easy life. Other people will be impressed with me. This is what keeping the law represents. I was reading some psychological research a couple of weeks ago, which looked at uh, key factors in the breakdown of relationships. And they said one of the number one factors that signifies a relationship is going to break down is what they called self-sufficiency. Thinking, I'm amazing. Look how good I am at following God. I'm amazing, everyone. Look at my monument. He doesn't want relationship with God. He just wants to look good. Some of the language in 1 Samuel 15, it sounds quite harsh to our modern ears. Rebellion, arrogance, it's like idolatry. Whoa. You ever been arrogant? I have. Samuel will be like, that's idolatry. What's idolatry? It just means this. Someone or something has become God in God's place. Money, popularity, pleasure, possessions, all of which revolve around self. It's all about me. This is what the covenant of law does. It shows up how polluted we are in here. But then, but then, but then, there's a second problem with the covenant of law. You see, we all know deep down that, that obeying the law, it's not as easy as keeping one ball in the air. We know on top of one law, we also have to not covet and not commit adultery. We have to honor our father and mother. We've got to put God first. And you, basically, there's a whole load of other laws as well. And it's impossible for anyone to keep the balls up the whole time. Uh, Adam, you have utterly failed in every way. You may take your seat. Um, For his own ego, should we give him a round of applause? It's all about you. (laughs) You see, none of us can keep the law. And what it leads to is mess and brokenness, balls everywhere. The fruit of which is guilt 
and shame and a chronic sense of failure. You ever felt like that? That's how the Mosaic Covenant makes us feel. It either makes us feel like, I'm amazing when really we're still broken in here, or I'm rubbish and I'm really not. And 1 Samuel 15 ends up in a really harsh place. It's really heavy. It says this, Until the day Samuel died, he did not go to see Saul again, though Samuel mourned for him. This is a heavy moment. The intermediary between humankind and God is gone. Which means the relationship between God and humankind is now totally broken. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. It's like a really harsh moment. Now remember, this is exactly how we are meant to feel. When the Hebrew Bible wants to explain something, it doesn't articulate a theory, it tells us a story. And what we're meant to feel at this point is, if Saul is not good enough, is anyone good enough? Can anyone keep up humanity's side of the bargain? Can anyone keep up humanity's contract? Can anyone connect us with God? And what happens here in 1 Samuel 15, it's the pivot moment in this story between covenants number four and covenant number five. In the very next chapter, we read about a young guy called David. David is a man after God's own heart. He doesn't want to build monuments in his own honor. He doesn't want to look great. He just wants relationship with God. And so God says, I'm going to transfer the kingship from Saul to you. The problem is, as the story goes on, we realize the man after God's own heart is also not good enough. He gets caught up in lying and murder and adultery. And so what God says to David is this, 2 Samuel 7, here's covenant number 5. A descendant is going to come from you, the seed of Abraham, the descendant of David. And this descendant is going to be one person, and this person is going to be a king and a priest. This descendant of David is going to connect the world to God and God to the world. And through this Davidic descendant, the rule of God is going to end up one day extending everywhere. And everything that's wrong with the world will somehow be put right. The king priest is going to come. And through the second half of the Old Testament, the prophets eagerly await the arrival of the king priest. Here's just one passage, Jeremiah 31. I could have picked loads. This has got lots of covenant language in God says this, the days are coming, coming when I will make a new covenant. It won't be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. Why? Because they broke my covenant, though what? Though I was a husband to them. This is the covenant I'll make with the people of Israel. I will put my law in their minds, write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they'll all know me from the least to the greatest, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Not even the man after God's own heart is good enough. But a descendant of David is going to come. And somehow through the king priest, the descendant of David, there's going to be power from God to live a different kind of life. People aren't going to have to teach me know the law because there's going to be power from within to live a better, a different kind of life. That's the promise of covenant number five. And 600 years after those words were written in Jeremiah, Jesus arrives in human history. And he lives a life that shows us what connection with God is really like. He loves the unlovable. He heals the sick. He sets the captive free. It's just the most perfect and amazing life. And the night before he gives up his life on the cross, 
he calls his friends together and says, I want you to eat some bread and drink some wine. That's what we're going to do in a few moments. Many of you will know this verse, Luke 22, he says this, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you for the forgiveness of your sins. In other words, Jesus is saying this, the old covenant, it's there to show you that you are not good enough. So I have come to show you what good enough looks like. And then I'm going to be the sacrifice. One sacrifice for all time, so that through my obedience, through me keeping the covenant, humanity can then connect to God. That's the story of covenant. That's the story of God. None of us are good enough. I'm not, you're not, but there is one who is, Jesus. And I can enjoy that embrace of God through him. So with all that said, what does obedience is better than sacrifice really mean? Well, let me try and illustrate it with a story. Uh, I want you to imagine a single parent, single mum, single dad, doesn't matter. And imagine they have a child, and they just give their life to this child. They scrimp and save, earn all the money they can to feed them, clothe them, get them to school, college, university, invest all these amazing values in this child. They're just the most loving parent ever. And when this child grows up, they're the most amazing adult. They're generous with their possessions. They love their neighbor. They care for the poor. They take on all the values of the parent. They're like the model human being, but they are totally estranged from their parent. They don't want to know. They don't want to talk to them. I don't want to visit them when they're sick. I don't want to send birthday or Christmas cards. I want nothing to do with them. Would any of us think that kind of behavior is acceptable? Of course not. We all know that doing lots of good works is not enough when it is utterly divorced from the one to whom we owe everything. That's what this verse is getting at. Sacrifice in 1 Samuel 15 kind of represents duty. Kind of represents doing things because I feel I have to. Like I'm supposed to do good works. In modern day terms, it represents, oh, I've got some problems in my life. I better start praying because then God will give me an easier life. I'm not praying because I want the embrace of God because I want relationship. I'm praying for my sake, not for his sake. It kind of represents, oh, there's some challenges I'm facing at work. I better stop going to church because then, then God will bless me. It's doing stuff out of duty. Obedience is all about love and trust. Doing this because I get to, not because I have to. Another illustration, this is from a guy called Tim Keller. He's a brilliant author and speaker in the States. He says this, and this is on the screen. When one of my sons, he says, was around eight years old, he began to exert his will and resist his parents' directions. I pause because... Uh, I've encountered this way before eight years old. What was he doing for the first eight years? Anyway, um, one time he said, I told him to do something, and he said, Dad, I'll obey you and do this, but only if you first explain why I should do it. I responded something like this, if you obey me only because it makes sense to you, that is not obedience, it's just agreement. The problem is you are too young to understand most of the reasons why I want you to do this. Do it because you are eight and I'm 38. Because you are a child and I am an adult and your father. That's what obedience is all about. It's like, I don't have all the answers. I'm eight, you're 38, so I'm just going to trust that you know best. And so I will live differently as a result. In Mark chapter 12, uh, Jesus, when he's walking the earth, he says this. All the Old Testament, all, all of this is basically summed up by this. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. 
And a teacher of the law hears Jesus say this, and he says, yeah, bravo, Jesus, you're right. That's what it's about. And he says this, to love God and love your neighbor is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifice. And when Jesus hears this guy say this, he says, you, sir, you are not far from the kingdom of God. When I begin to realize that this story is all about relationship, it's not about doing good works, it's not about church attendance, it's not about religious duty, when it's all about relationship, I am not far from the kingdom of God. I get into the kingdom of God when I enjoy that relationship for everything that it is. Maybe I could ask you a question. Are you in the kingdom of God? Or are you somewhere nearby? All this brings us to our gift day over the next two weeks. I have taken the longest possible journey here. And I'm going to spend two minutes on giving no more. As we take our gift day over the next two weeks, I just want to be really clear. Our primary motive in giving is not to be all the amazing stuff we'll do as a church. Starting new services, resourcing ministries. Our primary motive in giving is not to be, because we're about to move to a bigger venue, the Cryer Theatre, in nine weeks' time. Our primary motive in giving is not to be that, our oh, giving's at the heart of the Christian faith, and so I think I should do that. Those are all great reasons to give. That's not to be our primary reason to give. Our primary reason to give should be this. He's amazing. He's done everything for me. How can I not give my life to him in response? I love him. That's to be our motive in giving. You know, for, for many of us, this might be a sacrifice as we give, just to be clear. You know, I might have to go without some stuff in order to give. Uh, but perhaps I can illustrate it this way. Every birthday, every Christmas, and often in between, I buy my kids presents. I want to be clear, I don't do it because, oh, it's Christmas. I better buy them something. I don't want all the other parents thinking I'm a bad dad. Oh, I'll buy them a Dairy Milk or a Twix or something, you know, just, just to wrap something under the tree. Like, no, I, I buy them gifts because I love the moment when they open it. Like, oh, it's amazing, Dad, I love you. That, that's why I do it. It's exactly the same with giving in church. I'm to give, why? Because, oh, like, he's amazing and I love him. And yeah, it might be a sacrifice, but there is something better than that. And it is relationship with Jesus. A few weeks ago, a girl in a different service came to me. And she said, Andy, I've been praying for your service in Sutton, and I think God's spoken to me. I said, I'm all ears. She said, it's really simple. She said, I just felt God say this more than anything else. Your service is to be characterized by the centrality of the person of Jesus and love for him. And as you live that out, something about it is going to be magnetic for people and you're going to see some amazing stuff happen. That was it. When she said that, it just made my heart sink. And I want you to know, that is everything I want for our service. That's everything I want for everyone who walks through the doors, more than anything else, that we love Jesus. Why? Because everything else comes from that. I, I want it more than thousands of people joining the church. I want it more than our community and city being completely transformed. Why? Why, why? Because the story of Saul shows me that I can win amazing battles and set up monuments in my own honor, and it can still be broken and toxic in here. More than anything else is to be a place where we love Jesus. One final illustration. 
Uh, many of you will know I'm a big fan of a guy called Honorary Nowin. I've shared his story before. He was a remarkable guy. Uh, lecturer at Harvard, uh, wealthy, respected, loads of book deals. Uh, just a really amazing guy. Uh, but he was a follower of Jesus, but he lacked uh, kind of some of the intimacy and peace and joy and connection with Jesus that he thought the Bible says is possible. And his life got transformed when he joined a community called Lash, which are communities for those who are often severely impacted by uh, mental, by learning disabilities. And he decided to lay everything down to join this community. And he literally did lay everything down, not just the book deals and the finance, but even his own ego. ego. He said, you know, I was, I was surprised nobody was impressed by my many book deals in this home for the disadvantaged. I just laid down everything. And through laying down everything, he found the joy and the peace and the life that he longed for. It's not about climbing a ladder of success. Find it through relationship. What I didn't know until a couple of weeks ago was the moment that changed his life the pivot point in his whole journey of faith. It came when he saw a poster, a poster that he could not get out of his mind. In fact, he was so captivated with it, he bought a little postcard of it and he stared at it every single day for two years. And it was Rembrandt's painting of the moment in the story of the prodigal son where the father embraces the wayward child. And he stared at it every day for two years and he just began to realize, oh, it's all about relationship with God. That's what the Bible's all about. When he handed in his resignation and left Harvard, one of the first things he did was he flew to Russia and he went to the State Hermitage Museum where that painting hangs and he sat in front of it for four hours solid. He said this, most of all it was the hands, the old man's hands. As they touched the boy's shoulders, they reached me in a place where I had never been reached before. Do I know God like that? Or am I here because I have to be? Because it's a nice thing to go to church. Obedience is better than sacrifice. Love is better than duty. Where are we at? Maybe I could invite uh, James and Neas back to the front. Uh, in a moment, before we sing, I'm going to hand out the bread and the wine. It's a wonderful way of kind of physically reminding ourselves what this story is really all about. Not just remembering what Jesus has done, but remembering, oh, it's all about relationship. And if you would like to participate and take communion as a way of saying, I want to know God more like that. Wherever you're at on your faith journey, you are totally welcome to participate. And if you're like, I don't know, I'm not sure, I feel a bit uncomfortable, just let the bread and the wine pass you by. That is totally cool too. I wonder if we could just stand for a moment. And before I hand the bread and the wine out, I just want to leave a moment of quiet for you to reflect. Maybe you've been a Christian for a long, long time. But it's become more about duty than relationship. It's just a moment to say to God, I, I want you, Father, to embrace me like that again. I want you to reach me in the deepest part of who I am. Holy Spirit, we invite you to come. Holy Spirit, we invite you to come. And I want to ask that as we share communion now, as we sing these songs,
May we know the embrace of God, the love of the Father, connection with him again. May our faith not be a duty, may it be a pleasure and a joy. And may knowing God become real and alive in a new way. Whether we're new to this, whether we've been following you for many, many years, come draw close, I pray. I pray for those who feel lonely or far off. Help them to know they are welcome. For those who feel like I've just messed up, balls everywhere, help them to know they're forgiven through Jesus. We don't come through our own efforts, we come through his obedience. So point us to our loving Father who's done everything for us. And may we respond with the freedom and love and joy and peace that he has won for us. Come, Father, draw close by your spirit, we pray.